Good morning, good evening, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you may be doing. We wish to thank you for joining us for just another conspiracy show with your host, Jeff Williams. Special thanks tonight for the Pipes Choir and their theme, Stand By, and in particular to Mrs. K.S., who suggested the basis for the topic we will be discussing tonight. She took advantage of our email, to which I wholeheartedly recommend everyone to use for both correspondence and suggestions for future shows. The email address is capital J, capital A, capital C, capital S, at meetme.com. In other words, the initials for just another conspiracy show at meetme.com. But the show we have in mind for tonight addresses a typical theme that we'd like to discuss. The same thing as always, people continually ask why they should study history. They like to brush it off and say it's just dates that dead people used to do things, and nothing could be further from the truth. You see, the historical events that took place inform us of the conditions that we find ourselves in today. An event that happened hundreds of years ago can affect you any single day, and in fact, it is affecting you every Thursday, Sunday, and Monday, whether you directly participate in it or are affected by the people who do. So let's set our sights back to about 1692. 1692 is far enough back in time that America was newly discovered. The colonies were still British colonies. They hadn't become the United States and wouldn't for nearly another century. And in, the, in Salem, Massachusetts, the Salem witch trials had just begun. Now, the Salem witch trials may seem remote, remote from the present day, but they still resonate through time. One shared memory that virtually everybody in North America has is, being, is having the lessons of the Salem witch trials taught to us. We scoff at them today, saying, oh, such a thing could never possibly happen in the modern day and age. But yet, as recently as the 1950s, McCarthyism and the anti-communist trials were taking place and 1950 to today is much more recent than 1692 to today. So, as I've said before, history doesn't repeat itself, 
but it does echo and we should always be careful we are not caught up in the next echo. Now the Salem witch trials are interesting because the symptoms that the victims said that they suffered. They said they were having convulsive fits that were not related to epilepsy or at least the way epilepsy was understood by doctors back in that time. And more importantly, they said they felt like they were being pricked by pins and needles. This started with a few children and spread throughout the town. Inevitably, scapegoats were found. Of course, naturally the first scapegoats were the less desirable people, the, the beggars, the people who didn't show up to church every Sunday. And in, in puritanical New England, not going to church was seen as ungodly. It was a different time. It wasn't a time where people minded their own business, which is quite the opposite of what people would have you believe. People always call out to the past and say they wish to return to a golden age where people were free to enjoy themselves. Well, that simply is false. In the past, people paid very much attention to what their neighbors were doing, and perhaps more importantly, what they were not doing. For us to see our next-door neighbor with a garbage can on the street after a day or two, we wouldn't really pay attention to it. Unless, of course, you might perhaps be a thief looking for an opportunity to break in. But it's considered a sign of deviance in the modern day to look after your neighbor. In the past, this was actually considered part of your social duty, as part of your obligation to the community to be make sure your neighbor was taken care of and they were taking care of themselves. So what we consider as busybodies today were actually the glue of social fabric back in the day. Now, the important thing about this is the person who presided over the Salem witch trials, not directly, but indirectly, the power behind the throne, you might say, was a man called Increase Mather and his son Cotton Mather. Perhaps you've heard these names. Increase Mather was born in New England in about 1639. He was one of the most interesting people of that time because he was born in New England, traveled to England during the Cromwellian Re Revolution, participated in the chaos that ensued, received his ordination, but then when the English Restoration came, came about, he returned to New England and participated in virtually everything of that era, both himself and his son. Now, Increase Mather has the distinction of being the first person to be awarded an PhD, somewhat honorary, by Harvard College, later Harvard University. Of course, it was in divinities, which today is considered a soft science, not in the same category as the maths or engineering or astrophysics or what have you, but in those days it was a very, very serious concern. After all, divinity was what brought you closer to God, and the puritanical mindset, being close to godliness, was the most sacred thing possible for human beings. Now, the Puritans valued work above all else. So once again, 
If you saw your neighbor not particularly working hard, perhaps taking it easy, it would be your duty to go over and remind them that the measure of a man was the jingle in their pocket. Because the Puritans believed that hard work and loyalty to God would result in material prosperity. Of course, again in the modern day and age, we know these things are not necessarily related. And indeed, in Cotton Mather's own time, after the witch trials, he attempted to form a breakaway college from Harvard because his father himself felt that Harvard had become too liberal and was too lax in their standards. So they turned to a man called Elihu Yale. Elihu was a businessman, again, born in, born in New England, who had traveled back to England and made a fortune selling various things in India. He was involved in some scandalous things, including slave trading. Elihu Yale made a pact that for every single ship that sailed from India to England, at least 10 slaves should be on that ship. Which, in those days, again, it's a relative morality. It was considered more acceptable to have slaves in those days than it is now. But from our modern perspective, yes, indeed, 10 slaves per ship going to England in a pre-period of English expansion and prosperity was a tall order to fill. And there are rumors of gangs going around snatching young children and young people just to staff his get barges of slaves to go back to England. Now, when Cotton Mather was looking for the funds to build Yale University, Yale College it was, as it was known, Elihu Yale didn't actually give him the money, but in fact, he gave him 10 bales of goods and a number of books. The 10 bales of goods sold for about $800, which in the 1600s was an incredible sum of money. Um, beyond thousands, we potentially the hundreds of thousands of dollars. But they managed to auction those bales of goods, get their money, and eventually establish Yale University, which, as we all know, is now a massive Ivy League institution. However, again, this is all a puritanical response to what Cotton Mather and Increase Mather had been through because they had been through the Salem witch trials and they had seen the corruption that had come up because of those witch trials, they wished to do everything possible to go back to the puritanical roots. Um, they had written, they had both written screeds talking about something called spectral evidence. Now spectral evidence is no longer allowed in courts. It concerns dreams and visions. Now, dreams and visions, of course, meaning what you imagine in your dream state, and visions, whenever you're in a trance or meditative state, what you see then. This is exactly the evidence that was admitted in the Salem witch trials. And at Harvard University, where Increase Mather was one of the presidents, he was starting to see more and more of these outside practices being allowed into his puritanical Harvard school. So when Cotton Mather established Yale University, 
It was an attempt to go back to a purer, more simple time, a return to the golden age, which is a constant theme in humanity. We always try to go back to a golden era. And one thing I suggest to you, when somebody says, it's time we return to a golden era, you should always ask which golden era they refer to. Are they talking about the 1960s, where we had a space program and nuclear technology and all those wondrous things? Are they talking the 1920s, where there was roaring businesses and boom and everything? Are they talking Roman times? Because inevitably, there are people who are saying those are the golden age, ages. They're the same people that don't understand the dark underbelly of what was happening. Now, back to Yale University being founded by, quite frankly, a scoundrel in Elihu Yale. Elihu Yale barely took any interest in the university after his donation. He was in fact removed from his post in the East India Trading Company due to charges of corruption. So the very man who enabled Yale University was himself corrupted. But Cotton Mather was the one who used the funds from the corrupt man, and no doubt he knew at least something about the man's reputation when he took the money. So the School for Reform from the excesses of Harvard was started with filthy lucre, filthy money. Yale itself is um, home to many, many fraternities. And the most important one is probably the skull and bones. A lot of your ears are immediately perking up as the skull and bones has been linked to so many famous people it would take an entire show to go through the list. Millionaires, billionaires, presidents, um, people of power, men of industry. And it started all the way back in 1832. So by the time it was formed, Yale was already almost 100 years old. And now the Skull and Bones itself is one of the elder fraternities on campus. Um, now, 1832 works out to a number five. Five is kind of an island in the numerology. It's the middle of a sea of numbers, which gives it, at one point, the illusion of great stability, but the tendency to shift to one side or the other at any given moment. And as we can see from the graduates from the fraternity of the skull and bones, that is exactly what they do. They destabilize wherever they go in. They, they do make great profit out of the chaos that they cause, but the one thing that inevitably happens, they make their own stability while making everybody's life very uncomfortable. Just as some recent examples, George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush. I hate to pick on these two gentlemen, but their names come up an awful lot in history when you study them. Both of them were Bonesmen, as the Skull and Bones members like to call themselves. And no one can deny that uh, they both presided over some very, very tumultuous years in American history and that of history that affected the world. So 
The other problem with the Skull and Bones fraternity is they've been an enigma since the beginning. Now, they are not really a true secret society, which is why I've chosen to call them a fraternity. See, a secret society would be like the Society of Assassins, where they kept their existence an absolute secret. It was only rumored that they were around during the Crusades. The Masons, for example, are not a secret society. We all know where they are. We all know where they meet. We can point out their lodges. They are a society with secrets. And the same is true about the Skull and Bones. Whatever goes on behind those closed doors is known only to those who are initiated inside. And as an interesting side note, Increase Mather, during his time at Harvard, at Harvard, he actually outlawed the practice of hazing. But meanwhile at Yale, the product of his, of his son's efforts, hazing is well known in all of their fraternities. Now, from 1832, we're going to fast forward a little bit to 1880. And the reason is, the Skull and Bones was in place, Yale University was in place, the very framework that uh, Increase and Cotton Mather had put up is all in place, the emergence of something rather special. Now, in 1880, there were, ga there were games held between Yale University and McGill University in Canada. There was one particular sport that was born on this day. You probably know it. Again, every th Thursday, Sunday, and Monday, people gather to watch football. And in 1880, a bonesman named Walter Camp became, or sorry, was playing in those games and he became known as the father of modern football. He innovated the line of scrimmage. He innovated some of the basic plays. He was the first coach at Yale University and at Stanford University. The man was professional football personified. And again, he is a bonesman. So once again, we have a case of a member of the Skull and Bones fraternity going out into the world and starting basically a revolution that continues to this day, whether you like it or you don't. For those, for those of you who don't know, um, Walter Camp, uh, sorry, took a moment to catch my thought. Walter Camp was one of the people that pioneered the huddle. Now, the interesting part about a football huddle is it's the beginning of a ritual. You think of it as a quarterback calling plays, but as any former football player can tell you, if it was so effective, why wouldn't defenses use it? Only offenses do. And the reason is the quarterback is trying to impose his will on the other team, and whichever team can impose their will the most on the other team are declared the victors. The quarterback calls those plays. Now, those plays are basically not only blocking, which says which of the linemen are going to go forward, but they have to follow certain structures. There must always be five linemen. Um, 
there has to be only one man in motion in the United States. In Canada, there's more men allowed in motion, but everything is choreographed around these things. The teams have practices to make sure their ritual work, their footwork is all going to be in sync. This is one of the most basic rituals known to humankind, dating back possibly even to Australopithecine man, where people move in unison to a given rhythm. Now, football teams only take a certain number of seconds to run their plays, but those plays are run to precision. The wide receiver is going to take 10 paces, turn 20 degrees, and then keep running until either he catches the ball or the play is over. The running back is going to look for a certain hole and is going to dive for it. The quarterback is either going to kneel down and try to try to get the clock to stop or is going to spike the ball. Everything is choreographed and that's 11 or possibly 12 people for us in Canada all working in unison to accomplish one unified motion. Again, all the basics for a ritual. The quarterbacks even have names for their plays. They'll tell, you know, Blue formation, X32, Y41, Z20. That code tells the players what to do. So you have a specialized language, ritual motion, and all this being pioneered by Walter Camp way back in 1880. Of course, many innovations have happened over the years, but the basics are still the same. Walter Camp also left us a legacy because in the latter part of his career, he coached a man named Pudge Heffelfinger. Pudge Heffelfinger is believed to be the first professional football player. In 1888, he was paid a sum of $500 for a single game. In today's money, that's between thirteen and $16,000, depending on how you do the calculation, for one game. In another game, he was given $20 plus $500 in expenses. Again, this man is the equivalent of one of our all-stars in the modern day, and all he was was a blocker. He wasn't a quarterback, a tight end, or anybody that you consider with a big money player in the modern age. But the important fact is, this man was the first professional football player coached by Walter Camp, a bonesman, which is part of Yale University, established by Cotton Mather, who, with his father, presided over the Salem witch trials. So the very men who tried to prevent this corruption ultimately wound up sponsoring the very corruption that is present in our modern-day society. In 1920, the people who had formed the NFL, consisting, of course, of professional players, got together and formed their league. Now, their league, believe it or not, the NFL was initially incorporated as a non-profit. Until 2015, the NFL was a non-profit corporation. Since then, they've renamed themselves a trade federation, as if a football player was somehow equivalent to a plumber or an electrician or 
the people who repair your Bell phone lines every single day. Now, the NFL has polished their performance over the years, especially since the 1950s, to present a special televised package. Television, television deals are one of the major sources of income from the billion-dollar industry that is the formerly non-profit NFL. These billion-dollar deals, sorry, multi-billion-dollar deals, uh, are based around the fact that you are participating in the ritual you see on TV. They get you with basically men engaging in choreographed dancing, women shaking their bodies, shaking their pom-poms, and of course the music they get you with. All essential parts to drag you in. And I'm sure every one of us knows that dedicated sports fan who simply cannot miss the critical game, whatever that game might be. Pittsburgh versus Arizona on Saturday night, or whatever day it might be. If they miss it, they feel strange, just like people who watch TV re religiously. If they don't know their program, they get pins and needles. They get a strange sensation like something's not right, just like the victims of the Salem witch trials all those years ago. So, when Super Bowl comes around, football fever has built to an absolute pitch. The fans have gone insane waiting for their product. They've watched their team, or perhaps they've picked another favorite team to follow, but no matter what, they're determined to watch that game. The Super Bowl is so famous, in fact, that even non-football fans are willing to tune in to watch the halftime show, which is the crowning achievement of black magic. Now, this year, we are going to have an incredible incredible spell cast on us by the halftime show. See, back in 2004, there was what was called the wardrobe malfunction, where Justin Timberlake and, um, oh my goodness, I cannot remember Michael Jackson's sister's name. Anyways, they were dancing to a tune, and just by coincidence, a piece of her bra fell off and exposed a nipple, hence the term a nip-slip. Now, in 2004, this caused so much controversy that the NFL did everything it could to scrub it from their airwaves, as, as if that was somehow the worst part of the show. Nothing to do with the occult symbolism in the show. Nothing to do with the cheerleaders who were already scantily clad and shaking their body on the field. But the fact that Justin Timberlake had participated in this incident was enough for them to steer clear of him until this year. Now this year, the NFL has a very serious problem on its hands. The ratings are at their lowest of all time. Some have suggested this is due to the players protesting the national anthem by taking a knee. This may be true, but I think there's other factors at work. You see, it's not just a protest by the players, it's interfering with the spell that the NFL is casting on you. The owners, of course, who are all billionaires, 
who have made their fortunes, and who, a goodly number of them, have either attended the Skull and Bones or similar organizations, each and every single one of those people are all being disrupted. They want you tuned into their product. They want you so spellbound that you cannot do anything but sit and drink your beer and eat your chicken wings and watch their spectacle that they have perfected over the years. But these players taking a knee unintentionally have broken that spell. So what is the only thing that they have to do to show us that they still have power? Put on Justin Timberlake. One half of the wardrobe malfunction problem. Now, Justin Timberlake is almost guaranteed to have some sort of occult symbolism in his show. And I'm sure he's going to do something, while not quite as controversial as a nip slip, but he's an entertainer. He knows why he's being hired. And I assure you, he's going to deliver something absolutely memorable. What it is? Well, we'll have to wait until February to know for sure. But the fact is, all the ingredients are there for something quite remarkable. So, witchcraft and the NFL. They seem like polar opposites. We see witches and dark rooms, casting spells, boiling frogs, and all that other nonsense, which is completely not what witchcraft is. But the NFL, which sits in dark rooms and boils their ideas to make sure that you, the viewer, are addicted to their screens and can't live without it to the point that it's almost a drug to your system, they are the ones casting the spell with their ritual dance movements that are designed to trigger the basic parts of your brain system, that very essence of what is human, which originally was designed to keep us functioning as one, communicating on the plains of the ancient African savanna, which is where humanity comes from. But it's a very powerful symbolism when you see men, rhythm, and when I say rhythm, I don't only mean just with drums beating, but the actual rhythm that they pace themselves through dance steps, through coordinated work or through calling a football play. It's that, that's a combination of rhythm and success that is what they try to give you. And of course, when your team wins or your team scores an important point, we are inclined to jump up and cheer. Exactly the sort of spectral idea that Cotton Mathers and increase Mathers were warning us against so many years ago. So, not only this Sunday, but not this Monday, and the next few that follow, just keep your mind and your wits about you when you're watching the game. Or, if you choose not to watch the game, perhaps you might be interested to tune in to the halftime show of the Super Bowl, but with an open mind and keeping your wits about you because they will try to cast a spell on you. They want you to leave behind whatever you're doing and watch only what they want you to see. And I assure you when that happens we will have a show discussing that. Now thank you for listening to just another conspiracy show.
I again welcome your emails, both comments and suggestions at capital J, capital A, capital C, capital S at meetme.com. Again, thanks to Mrs. KS for this suggestion, and I look forward to hearing from each and every one of you. Good night, Godspeed, and thank you again.